Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Graham Gullens, Vice President of Business and Corporate Development at Superpedestrian, a company that makes intelligent scooters and bikes and now operates a shared micromobility service called Link. Graham, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us what Super Pedestrian does? You have a few different businesses now, is that right? Yeah, so Super Pedestrian has been around for a little while. We are technically eight years old now. We were founded in 2013. The company spun out of MIT, where Asaf Biederman, our CEO, ran the MIT Sensible City Lab, one of the leading urban transportation labs. And our history has primarily been as an engineering company. Um, the first three years we spent engineering what we call our vehicle intelligence layer, which is a set of you know boards, CPUs, firmware, and cloud software, which detects and protects against common malfunctions in electronic or mechanical systems for light electric vehicles like scooters and e-bikes. And so our core technology was really developed you know, at the start of our company for, for the first three, four years of R&D. And then, you know, over the last five years or so, we spent most of our time building products with this core technology that, you know, helps improve the reliability and performance. So 2017, we debuted our e-bike called the Copenhagen Wheel, actually well, well known now through a series of viral videos, and it won a few awards from Time Magazine and others. Copenhagen Wheel has like one of the best performing e-bikes out there, as smooth as powertrain, and really gets a you know you know shock out of people when they first ride it. That uh, product we still sell directly to consumer in the U.S. And then to wrap up the story, we also added a product starting in 2018, which is our shared electric scooter. Given the success of you know scooter sharing across the U.S., Europe, and now Asia Pacific too, we saw this as a big opportunity to take our same technology and plop it into 
uh, a new vehicle type. Uh, so our autonomous vehicle, autonomous maintenance technology works really well in a shared use case, which I can explain later as well. And that's now one of the big components of our super pedestrian. So we operate our own scooter sharing fleets and we partner with other types of companies as well. Our own scooter sharing fleet is Link Scooters and they're on the road now today as of July 1st, 2020 in five markets across the US and expanding into Europe and the UK. So those, that's just a brief summary of our pedigree, but also our product portfolio. Great. Well, I'd love to have you take us through the super pedestrian electric scooters and tell us about the various aspects of the vehicle that are unique. You mentioned your vehicle intelligence. Maybe take us through why your scooters are are different. Sure. So thanks for asking that. Starting again back a little history was, you know, it seems like a while ago, but it was only in the last three years or so. The sharing industry emerged primarily with Oppo, Mobike, and other bike sharing operators. But when the electric scooter came around, and I think it was, you know, Travis from Bird to debut in Santa Monica, there was an incredible amount of, you know, euphoria for this as a mobility type because the revenue you can generate on the asset. It's higher ridership and have a higher revenue per ride than a traditional bike sharing model. So that was really what launched e-scooters. And when we saw that happening in late 2017 and early 2018, we said, our technology is actually perfect for the sharing industry because in the sharing industry, you get that much more use and abuse out of vehicles than out of a personal owned vehicle. In a personal owned vehicle, it's being used less, but also you're taking care of it a little bit better. You're taking it out of the rain, you're maintaining it, you're taking it in for repairs to a bike shop, for example. So we knew the, you know, we foresaw a lot of the issues that, you know, unfortunately came true for the industry, which is, you know, poor mechanical engineering, electronic problems, which led to you know, poor braking instances and, and a whole host of other problems that came about in this industry, we kind of saw that to be the case back in 2018. So what we set up to do is we said, while the industry scales with various models of scooters and to improve upon the safety and compliance and economics of running the business, we'll do what we do best, which is engineering. We have 43 engineers in, in our facility in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We've been, you know, been working together for about eight years total now. And we set out on a two-year engineering program. The first year and a half was testing various scooters. We put sensors and other scooters, ride them around, see where they break. You learn what you, know, the, 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 you need to hit your requirements for profitable, safe, and compliant, our three goals. And halfway through 2019, 19, kind of accelerating through the engineering story, we had our first vehicles off the line from a production facility. We rode those around in a beta, about 100 vehicles in a beta to you know, tens of thousands of miles to again, check that we had hit our engineering requirements. So you know, in that two-year engineering program, you're, you're, you're experimenting, you're, you're generating a hypothesis on what uh, targets you want to hit from a vehicle requirements perspective. Then you get your first batch back and you see where you've over-engineered and under-engineered. So that's the process we went through from 2018 to 2019. And by the start of this year, we deployed our first fleet in Florida because we were extremely confident we could hit on the, the needs of you know, riders, which is safety, the needs of the cities, which is compliance, and the needs of you know, operating a business, which is you know, making a positive unit economics which is, you know, all three of those have been challenging for the industry thus far. And you uh, got into operating your own scooters, as you said, just recently with an acquisition of Zagster. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so Zaxter, we've known for a little while. They're also a local Boston-based company. So we've, we've had, you know, on and off connection with them for five years or so. They were one of the, you know, OG micromobility companies uh, like ours, but from a very different perspective. We are a hardware engineering, you know, DNA company. They were one of the, you know, early adopters and pioneers of bike share alongside, you know, social bicycles, which became Jump. And they had had 10 or 12 years of operating bike share, which is a challenging but, you know, fruitful endeavor if, if you can make it work. And they got into operating scooter fleets in early 2019. They operated a fleet, uh, a large fleet for Spin, Spin, one of the scooter sharing operators owned by Ford, in about a dozen markets. And when we set out to launch our own fleet, we didn't have the operational capabilities to do that in-house yet. We had a great team of engineers and a few business people like myself. So we partnered with Zagster, having had a year of experience of running scooters and having had 10 years of running bikes. Lean, mean, but you know, great relationship, great city, you know, city reputations across 250 communities in the U.S. So they operated our fleet from January to uh, May. COVID obviously hit in there, and and that gave us a chance to you know formalize what used to be a partnership into an acquisition, where we were able to basically add on a, a turnkey solution to be a provide an operational provider, full stack, vertically integrated micromobility solution. So we have everything you know on the full stack now, which is engineering and supply chain, all of that is done in-house, all the way to the operations team, which we acquired through the Zagster. And now we're scaling up uh, other parts of our business, hiring, you know, we've hired six people from the industry across our government partnership team to, you know, go in and, and partner with more and more cities uh, in the U.S. and Europe right now. So going back to your scooters and this idea of vehicle intelligence, it seems like one of the things that's different is that you're trying to be able to sort of have a self-diagnostic environment on the scooter. Can you give us some breakdown of sort of how that works and and why it's different from other scooters? Like how how does that process work? Yeah, it's a really good question because it's it's sometimes hard to articulate it because when it works, you can't see anything. When it works, it means that the vehicle is working, right? And so when people ask for demonstrations, it's it's hard because these vehicles just don't break down. They're, you know, they're they're supported by their firmware and their availability on the street is, you know, we're over 95% with our entire fleet right now. So it's hard to actually show, but I'll describe how it works and I'll give you one example because I think that'll crystallize how, how our, you know, system works. The way it works is our core team, you know, back from 2013, engineered a set of boards, CPUs, and firmware that lives on the vehicle. And that um, combination has been measuring data for, you know, eight years now since our initial development of how scooters and e-bikes and other microelectric vehicles perform in the wild. It catches, you know, the normal use cases, it catches the edge cases, and then it keeps tally of when the system fails. When you go over a curb, what happens to the mechanical chassis of it? When you, you know, get thrown underwater, what happens to the, you know, boards? Do they short circuit because, you know, there's power between the battery and motor, for example? So we've learned over these eight years what breaks systems. And, you know, a lot of the failures that happen in the industry, we, we saw early days in our e-bike. That's kind of the process in which we built our system. It's technically a system that we can plop in other vehicle types. So it's a board and firmware. There's also a predicted maintenance layer in the cloud, meaning if brake cables are starting to wear down, we can learn that because the scooter or e-bike is slowing down at a slower rate, or when you brake, it takes a longer distance to come to a stop than when it 
when we know that it's that factory reset mode, which is, you know, 12 feet for our scooter at full speed. So we have this predictive maintenance aspect. We have this firmware on board and they, they work hand in hand. Things that happen to have to happen on board are things that have to be, you know, prevent failures from happening in real time. So battery fires, which, which happen, you know, in the industry, we haven't run into that because the system can kill itself before it runs into a problem there. So there's a local component to vehicle intelligence where it detects and prevents malfunctions from happening. Then there's the predictive maintenance, which is in the cloud, which is it, it learns what, how that scooter is performing over time. And then it can figure out, does it need a new component here or there? And it's a little bit more, you know, slower in its like predictive abilities. So that's how it works. I'll give you one example because I think it's interesting, which is, you know, uh, unfortunately there's vandalism in the industry that's come down, I think, as, you know, pedestrians and, and cars are more used to having these vehicles on road. So there has to be more coordination among all different transportation types. The best example is, you know, from vandalism, sometimes scooters can be thrown underwater. So we wanted to make sure we captured this use case and we actually engineered our vehicles to allow water to come up, you know, take water on, which is the opposite. But in learning from the engineers, you never can prevent water from getting in. So you may as well let it in and and then figure out how to protect the system. So example is if we tested our scooter at the MIT pool, which is put our scooter underwater and see what happens, right? So immediately upon hitting the water, if you throw it in the water, it detects you know, a, a problem. It detects that there's been an accident. And, and this was in our you know, pool test where the vehicle immediately kills power between the throttle motor and battery pack. And so that it protects the system. So it's not hazardous to, to the water or, or to the vehicle itself. And upon retrieving that vehicle in the pool test that we did, that vehicle actually still reported its location because the GPS was still powered on. And it had faulted, so it wouldn't allow you to ride it because it was a safety hazard that it just went underwater. But that vehicle can be back on road after drying out and being turned back on for operation. So the vehicle intelligence system protects it, which is, you know, protection for the rider, you know, safety number one, but also protects the vehicle so it doesn't damage whatever, you know, body of water it's been put into. So that's one demonstration of how vehicle intelligence works. And are you using any vehicle intelligence for active safety? while riders are riding the scooter? Yes, the answer is, in fact, every 30 minutes, our scooters go through a safety check when they're not in a ride. And then every 30 seconds when in a ride, they go through a safety check and all that data gets sent back to us to make sure we know what's happening with the vehicle. The safety check is primarily to make sure the mechanical and electrical systems are to the point where they're safe for a ride to get on. Because we want you to know that when you get on on that scooter, it's safe to ride. So there's certain things we can detect for that would make the ride safe. So if the battery was overheating, we want to make sure we don't overheat the battery to the point where it catches on fire or short circuits. And that often happens going downhill or an uphill because, you know, you're using more wattage from your motor. So we do a lot of thermal events in our vehicle intelligence system, which basically says, if you rode our battery, you know, our vehicle up and down hills, up and down, that would cause it to hit a threshold where it would you know, lead to a thermal event, unfortunately. So what we end up doing is we, we, you know, dissipate energy back to the motor windings or we dissipate energy back to the heat sink that the motor controller is in. So we try to, you know, get rid of that thermal energy first. And if we can't get rid of all the thermal energy and we're exceeding some threshold, we'll start lowering the motor power. So the, maybe the 10th time you go up a hill, you're going up slower because the system has heated up. So that's one example that, you know, prevents the battery fire, which, uh, you know, unfortunately has happened in the industry. But also, it also works when you're going downhill when there's an overspeed, right? The vehicle 
when you're going downhill, it, it heats up the motor and you want to dissipate that energy off as hot, hot as possible. Because if you lost your regenerative braking capabilities, that may really affect someone when he's going downhill who's now relying on the mechanical brake. So it's constantly looking for measurements that it's taking that would cause some safety threshold. And so that's what we had to retool for our scooter from our e-bike. What are those thresholds where the system is in a hazard state, in a, you know, might fail state, and then take all the, those actions possible before it actually fails because you never want a safety issue for the rider or the vehicle itself. And all of that data goes back to the cloud. So the rest of the fleet kind of then gets the benefit of whatever learning happens from a set of, of events. Correct. Yeah. So none of this is rider or user data, just to be clear. This is all vehicle diagnostic data, temperatures, voltages, battery cell capacities, brake tension, for example. And all that data helps get us very specific in each city because the, the temperature and the weather in cities are different. The hills are, there's more hills in Salt Lake City and Provo, Utah, where we are, than in Florida, where we are as well, uh, apart from one bridge. I think that's the only hill in Florida, I think. <laughs> so yeah, we have to learn from each deployment how the scooters are performing. They're going to perform different in a Dubai where it's hot than in New England where we are, where, where there's cold winters. And so we, after each deployment, every month we study the data and say, how can we improve that specific fleet? So it becomes very customized to the city, becomes customized down to the vehicle. And these vehicles are smart enough to know what's going on with them. And if they break, they're smart enough to take themselves on a service, create a service ticket. We dispatch someone to go and pick it up. And now um, instead of having a user report a problem with it, the vehicle is reporting the problem, which helps our bottom line, but also helps on the safety aspect of it. And tell us about the battery. My understanding is that your scooters have a battery that lasts longer than some others in the industry. What was the engineering there? Can the battery get uh, even longer life? Or how, how do you think about battery life? Sure. So, you know, early in 2018, we realized that it's labor intensive to pick up scooters every day or twice a day to recharge them. The early scooter models have really small batteries. So what we did is we stuck a gigantic battery in our vehicle. Our deck and platform is wide and long and, and durable. And we stuck an 84 cell battery in the platform. It's nearly one kilowatt hour, which is by far the largest of, of any scooter that's out there. If you rode it from you know, point A to point B without stopping, you'd get about 55 miles or five hours if you're on a scooter. We've, we've done that many times. I don't think anyone wants to be on a scooter for that long, but we've tested it. There's no special sauce in just sticking a gigantic battery in the scooter, but it really helps with your you know, bottom line because you're not having to fetch the scooters every day. We fetch about one and one uh, tenth of our fleet for recharging a night. But there's been other developments in the industry. A lot of other operators have swappable batteries, which also tries to accomplish the same thing. So we've gotten it down to the point where we're about on par with swappable batteries. We are introducing a swappable battery sometime next year. But the only special thoughts that we have related to our you know, powertrain is just the performance, right? When you step on a scooter as a rider, you would understand the performance is much better in terms of the acceleration, deceleration with the regenerative braking. Performance going up and down hills, you will tell it's about three times stronger in terms of climbing hills than other scooters that, you, know, you may have tried as well. So your scooter is somewhat wider and heavier than other scooters, both for durability purposes, but also to accommodate a larger battery. Absolutely. That goes into the rider ergonomics, and you can almost tell just by looking at it, it's bigger than any scooter out there. It's heavier. It's about 62 pounds. 
Uh, but it's got a really low center of gravity because it's like a gigantic battery pack. There's 84 lithium-ion cells in the battery pack, so it gives a low center of gravity, so it's really stable to ride. The steering column has a greater rake angle to it, so it's a little bit more stable. If you think about a straight-up steering column and you try to move the handlebars, it feel more wobbly. The handlebar height and vehicle height is a little bit higher off the ground, so cars can see you a bit better, and it just rides like a dream. I mean, I think it's it's not one of these wobbly scooters, like a consumer-built scooter. It's, it's like a, we call it a tank, but it's actually much easier. Despite the weight, it's easy to ride because the powertrain works well with the ergonomics of the scooter. And you mentioned earlier uh, compliance with city rules was something you were focused on as a, a key tenant of, of trying to operate scooters. How does the intelligence or other aspects of your scooter help in complying with city rules? Yeah. So the relationship between micromobility operators and cities has to be great because cities are allowing operators on their streets, which means that they have to make sure their citizens are getting a safe and compliant you know, transportation option like they're offered through public transit and other modes. So that relationship seems to be improving across the industry, especially post-COVID. Cities need micromobility more so than they did before because of challenges with social distancing on public transit. So there's, there's work to be done between operators and cities, but that's where we somewhat lean on our operating experience through Zagster, which is, you know, partner with the city first, and then everything else goes much better in terms of the city's performance and our performance and riders' interest. To hit on one of the key tenants on where cities care about, cities really care about many things, but I'll, you know, shorten it down to two that we focus on. One is safety. You know, we don't want our citizens getting injured, right? Don't put bad vehicles out there that could, you know, jeopardize someone from getting on something that's unsafe. And that's where we work on our active safety system. We don't want you getting on a, our vehicle that is unsafe. So we're going to check it while you're in a ride and, and before a ride. And then it comes down to com, uh, geofence compliance. So that's one area of compliance the cities care about. And I'll talk about the challenges of the industry and I'll talk about how we solve it, which is Geofence compliance means you know, the city doesn't want to allow scooters or e-bikes in a certain park or doesn't want them to be riding on a, on a path where there's lots of citizens. And so over the last you know, two years of the whole industry, cities have told scooter companies where they can't operate their fleet. The unfortunate problem is that the technology has never been there to purposely enforce geofencing. So as a city representative or council person, you would expect a scooter to stop exactly at the geofence, but the technology never met that. And I think that became the sobering reality last year where cities would see scooters drive right through geofences and the vehicles not, you know, reduce their speed and, and slow down to a halt. And the reason why is that there's a lag between where the vehicle's position is and it going to the cloud, looking up the geofence and reinforcing that. And there's, there's you know, third-party servers involved there. There's connectivity, right? There, you know, the GPS location may be off and it has to send that to the cloud. So in some cases, you know, I was in Miami and, and we were talking to the city there and we, we rode a scooter all the way to City Hall and it shouldn't have ever been close to City Hall, but the geofence didn't pick up that it was there. So that's just uh, a challenge because of the industry is slightly immature in its technology. What we did is very different. We, we said geofences should hit right when you cross them. Like, there should be no ambiguity on like, you know, you drive 50 feet into a park and then it hits because that's when it decides to like enforce the compliance. We said the, the lag is in the connectivity between the vehicle and the cloud and, and the subsequent enforcement of that slower speed. We said, let's put the geofence actually on the scooter so there's no lag. So the scooter gets its position from the GPS, you know, a couple times a second. Then 
in real time, it's locally stored the map of the city and the geofence on the vehicle so that when the vehicle crosses the geofence that reads the GPS, it immediately kills the power to the motor and you safely glide to a stop if it's a no-ride zone. So there, it's just pure application technology. It's not something fancy or unique. It's just that maps should live on the vehicle to enforce geofences. Otherwise, you have a delay in going to the cloud. And that's, that's what's really helping cities and helping us win some key permits. And, and now we're getting into sidewalk prevention and things like that, which is the ultimate holy grail for the industry, too. Yeah. So you've referred to the fact that the shared scooter industry has faced a number of headwinds over the last few years. Let's talk about some of those challenges. It sounds like super pedestrian thinks that you guys can address some of those issues. Maybe we could start with reliability. The general experience in large cities for people who would like to wake up in the morning and ride a scooter on a commute is that they can't find the scooter when they want one. That the caps that have been set in many cities are too low, that you could walk and walk and still not find one, or maybe you find one and the battery's dead, or it's for some other reason not working. How are you thinking about reliability and making a scooter fleet something that people can feel comfortable will work and be available to them on a regular basis? Sure. There's a couple of things to unpack here, so I'll try to go through them one by one, which is given the, the challenge in keeping scooters on road safe and working and connecting with the cloud and all the things that go into having that scooter be ready for a ride, the industry is relatively new. And so operators have not been able to hit 100% availability with their fleets on road, right? That's what the goal is for everyone, including us. The, the way the industry has really kind of tried to hit the caps, because often in some cities, you're going to get the most demand when you're, when you're operating your fleet at the caps, is you have extra scooters in the warehouse. So if X percent of your fleet, called 25% of your fleet, is not working for, for maintenance or charging needs, you'll go and redeploy the buffer stock that's in inventory. So that's kind of uh, what the industry has done to try to hit the caps, which is uh, a good solution at the time of low available fleets. But it, it makes it hard as a business to turn a profit because now you need extra scooters to keep, keep the fleet uh, on road. So that's what everyone's trying to get to, which is in a thousand scooter cap market, can I have 1,050 scooters in my warehouse and on the streets to have high uptime? So that's a little bit of a phenomenon. There's a couple of things to unpack from the rider's perspective. The first is you don't really know if that scooter is ready to ride or not, right? The vehicle typically... Some vehicles have green LED rings, which say they're available to ride, ours included. Some have no way of knowing if it's ready to ride or not. You just have to unlock it and see if it works, right? And so that's been a customer service complaint that the industry has seen is like, I unlocked my scooter, you charged me the dollar to unlock, but now it's not going. So now I have to get the refund and that becomes a costly exercise for the rider and, and up. So that goes back to our safety check system. If we're doing that safety check before the rider gets on and we're reporting the cloud and the scooter is healthy, healthy and happy, we should have 99 plus percent of that chance of that, that vehicle working. So a green LED ring on our scooter, which you can see from all sides, means that scooter is working. So you want to communicate that to the rider through, through some LED on the light that we have, or some other method, and you want to make sure the rider has uh, some you know, expectation that that scooter is going to work. So that's one thing we've got to do. The other is just in terms of making sure the scooters are working, right? In our scooter, the vehicle is reporting its health back to us. It may say the motor needs to be replaced and we go and replace the scooter. So you want to have that 
relationship with the vehicle where it's telling you what's wrong with it. Otherwise, it's very costly and you, you lower your vehicle availability when you're constantly trying to figure out what's wrong. If someone reported an issue or you picked it up to be recharged and had an issue, that feedback cycle can take way too long. And so you're the number of vehicles you have in maintenance is really high. So what we always try to do is have the percentage of vehicles in maintenance relative to uh, vehicles on the street at a small single digit percentage or, or less, less than 1%. Because the vehicles, if they know what's wrong with them, they'll tell us and then we can put them back on the road. And that whole feedback loop of triaging what's going on, going in there with a scope and a mechanic is shortened by the fact that the vehicle knows what's going wrong. Uh, so I, I hope those things touched on your question. Yeah. And you guys have a lot of vehicle intelligence. Are you able to leverage that data to try to increase the number of rides per day? Obviously, you've mentioned you've got a battery that lasts a long time. You've got great mechanical reporting to make sure your scooters are operational. But if they're not in the right location, or if there aren't enough of them to meet demand at certain times of day, you're really not going to be able to maximize the number of rides per day you would like. So how do you think about that problem? And are there ways to improve the revenue opportunities by getting more rides? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's not just improving the revenue for us, it's abiding by the city requirements, right? If the cities want to make sure you're evenly distributed around the city or they don't want your vehicles all tipped over or they don't want them in certain areas because there's higher incidents in that area. So it's not just a let's maximize our revenue. It's like, let's make sure the data is helping the city get out of micromobility of what we're, what we're trying to accomplish as well. So to address that before I get into the revenue side is we know when the vehicles are tipped over. And so in markets that we go into, we can show a map to the city and say, here's where there's potentially a parking problem. And we can station more ops people in that area to educate people on how to park these better so that they're not in the way of uh, pedestrians, for example, or not in the way of car parking spots or something like that. So there's, uh, there's a need to pass data to the city. It can also, you know, heat map where, where you know, likely accidents happen or, or vandalism events and share that with the city as well. So there is a relationship there with the city that I think the cities always want to learn more of what's going on in their roads. From our perspective, in terms of maximizing ridership, you're right. The, the way to do that is beyond the traditional marketing activities, which can help people download your app and, and jump on a ride. It's all about being at the right place at the right time. When someone needs to get from one mile from point A to point B, they want to, and they want to take a scooter, they're going to take the scooter that's closest to them, right? And in, often you'll get to a street corner and there's four different operators next to each other and you'll pick maybe your best vehicle or, or whatever, however you choose or maybe your best looking scooter. And that's where we do really well. But when it comes down to picking it when you're just faced with you and the scooter, you're always going to pick the one that's closest to you. So that's kind of like what we and, and others are working on right now, which is how do you predict where the demand is going to be? And then how do you position your vehicle that way? And so it involves micro rebalancing, it involves bigger rebalancing back to hubs and things like that. And so um, we're do, we have a few data projects in there, but it's what everyone's trying to get to. I don't think anyone's solved. How can I have a scooter ready for that person when they're ready for a ride? It's just always a work in progress. I think another complaint that we're seeing from riders at this point is that the prices have really gone up for shared scooters. They were subsidized by venture capital investment at the beginning and looking to really prove the concept and, and encourage ridership. And now companies are really trying to get to profitability and, and make sure they can operate in a sustainable long-term way. 
how are you thinking about pricing and what that relationship is to things like city fees and the operational requirements? Is that a key factor that you're looking at in deciding on which cities you want to operate in? Yeah, so it's a really good question because pricing has changed quite a bit in the industry. I think it started at a dollar plus 15 cents when Bird launched in Santa Monica. And then it now depends on the city, the pricing. I've seen it as high as 39 cents a minute. I've seen it as low as 15 cents a minute sometimes still. I think the price typically hovers around 29 to 35 cents for most, most operators. I think what you see generally across the industry is scooter rides, which average about a mile in distance, cost about $4.25 to $4.50. So I think it still is cheaper than an Uber and Lyft, especially because maybe you can get through traffic a little bit more easily on a scooter. But no doubt from where scooter sharing started, it's a little bit more pricey. I think my high level answer is that the relationships between operators and cities just has to grow and evolve and get stronger because the more city fees levied on micromobility operators, the harder it is for them to make money and they have to pass that on to customer by way of pricing increases, right? And so there's been some great examples where cities actually take those fees and build more bike lanes, which is to everyone's benefit, to the operator's benefit, to the cities and the riders. So that's what I want to see more of, which is there has to be some relationship between operators running sustainable business models, cities wanting this um, and partnering with micromobility operators, and then being affordable for riders so that it's not more expensive than a Lyft or Uber, which it arguably should be because it's a single vehicle you drive yourself. So right now, I think the industry is hovering at, you know, four and a quarter, 450. I I hope that that is cheaper than most Uber or Lyft rides. But, you know, as fees change with cities or relationships with cities change, I think that can, that can go one way or the other too. Another big concern for shared scooter providers has been this issue of clutter and the objection that many citizens have and cities have around blocked sidewalks and scooters being thrown in the trash and all kinds of things. And cities have largely reacted to that by imposing geofences around certain areas and by limiting the number of scooters really with, with significant caps to try to address clutter. How are you guys thinking about keeping sidewalks clear, encouraging good rider behavior and working with cities around clutter? Sure. So I think the scooters best belong in the bike lane. And in some cities, that's where they encourage riders to ride. In other cities, they prefer you to be on the streets. Scooters are not great on the sidewalk because that's arguably the pedestrian area. So I think there's, there's more work to be done with cities and really accomplish what they want. Some want to make sure scooters are only in the bike lanes. Some want to make sure they're only in the roads. Some want to say anywhere but the sidewalks. And that's what we do in our various pilots on, on sidewalk geofencing. So the goal is to reduce the amount of riding on sidewalks. And one way we accomplish that is through geofences that interrupt your ride when going on a sidewalk to the point where you would learn that you would not want to ride on a sidewalk again. So that's one, one way in which we kind of prevent one of the challenges that cities face is sidewalk riding. You talked about clutter on the sidewalks or, or streets wherever they're parked. Generally, from my conversations with cities and, and just my experience with vehicles on road is that if they're neatly standing up on the side of the sidewalk and they're on the side of the sidewalk or on, you know, just on the side of the road, 
people generally don't complain about it. It can't be in the middle of sidewalk. That's a you know hazard for everyone. But what what we do is the industry has adopted to take a picture of your scooter so you could maybe identify who's you know consistently leaving them in the wrong areas. Two is we're one of the few companies that has the ability to tell if a scooter's tipped over, and then we keep tracking that. So in our deployment in Florida, there are certain hotspots where scooters tip over. Maybe people aren't parking them correctly there, or maybe the sidewalk's uneven, and we need to do a geofence to prevent people from parking there. So those are some examples on how you prevent, from a technology perspective, how you prevent some of the clutter and sidewalk riding issues. Then there's a whole rider education, and as micromobility is more generally adopted, that should get better over time. I've seen it personally in markets where bikes aren't usually parked in the way and scooters are starting to get to that point as well. So I think it's just an evolution of the industry plus technology can enable some ways in which you reduce clutter. One of the other concerns that's been expressed is around safety. And you mentioned earlier a number of features of your vehicles, which are designed to make the ride safer and make sure there aren't mechanical problems. A number of folks in the industry have said that the real issue with scooter safety is there's not a safe, protected lane for them to ride in, that they're being told don't ride on the sidewalk, but if there's no bike lane and there's parked cars on a street, it's really hard to find a place where you are in any way safe riding a scooter on a street in an urban area. How are you thinking about the infrastructure question? Is it necessary to build more protected bike lanes in order to grow the pie for micromobility? Yeah, I think I'm smiling because I think everyone in this industry is hoping for more bike lanes and, and scooter lanes. I think if you're in micromobility, you would prefer to see more micromobility than cars. So Yes, but I think everyone acknowledges that that takes time and budget from cities and it's not going to happen overnight. So that is probably the best long-term goal that everyone living in an urban environment can hope for. There's a need to reduce the amount of parking and car lanes and the dents of the city, that's probably even um, more the case. So I'm a big proponent of all the things that are going across the globe, which is cities are putting more budget into bike lanes. So the UK adopting their scooter sharing they're putting now billions into bike sharing, uh, into bike lanes as well. So I love seeing that. From a today engineering perspective, because I like to answer most of those questions with that brain on, you want to make sure the vehicle can be visible to cars, right? Because if you're in the bike lane or riding it alongside park cars, you want to make sure you're visible to cars so people can see you as they're pulling out of the parking place or driving. And so that's why we have a little bit higher platform and a little bit bigger chassis so cars can see you and you can see cars. And then again, the obvious is when there is a pothole or something else on the road, you wanna make sure you're safe and don't fail for that reason, right? The reason why cars can handle potholes is they have a long chassis, right? Scooters, shorter chassis, shorter than a bike, they hit a pothole and they could throw you off. And so we stretched the length of our chassis and deck to make it you know, more suitable for going through potholes. So you're just thinking of all the edge cases that scooters and e-bikes can run into, and that's what we engineer for. So what does the next year look like for super pedestrian? What kinds of cities are you looking to enter? Are you sticking with smaller cities? Are you looking to enter first-tier cities? What are your plans for the upcoming year? Sure. So the cities that we're in as of today are Fort Pierce, Florida. It's a a beach uh, coastal town on the East Coast. We've launched in Provo, Utah, and Salt Lake City, Utah, which are about 45 minutes apart from each other. Recently, Knoxville and and Columbus as well. So those are kind of mid-tier cities. They're great cities. We have strong relationships with each. But 
we've gone out and hired quite a few people from the industry who have built up their careers in partnering with cities, policy people, people who speak the language uh, more so than I do with cities, people from our competitors, because they want to be in the industry and they want to bring a next generation technology to cities for better safety and compliance. So we're out going to mid-sized cities, we're out going to larger cities, without saying specifically where in the US, in the UK, it seems like a lot of operators are there. We already have a thousand scooters landed there and we're going to be having a few more thousand headed there as well. And then across Europe as well, lots of opportunity in Europe. We're seeing good numbers out of a ridership there. And without being specific, we've hired a number of people from the industry, but not saying where we're going yet across Europe. Well, it sounds like uh, a lot of expansion ahead for you. It'll be an exciting year. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about what Super Pedestrian is up to. Thanks, Michelle. It was great. Thanks again to Graham for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new Substack publication, smartercars.substack.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.